the birth of Jesus Christ, being born of a virgin, but uh, for him to be born didn't do anything for my sin, but for him to die and for him to rise again gave me, who knew a lot of sin, and him who knew no sin, eternal life. And so I'm, I'm not a Grinch. I'm not a Grinch at all, but the reason that I have such a hard time celebrating Christmas through music is because it all focuses on his birth, and I am thankful that he was born, but I'm more thankful that he died and that he rose again. And so thank you, Miss Ashley, and Pastor nailed it on the head. We miss uh, the Neil family, no doubt, hands down, the person that I miss the most, the most, is Brother Lincoln. Brother Lincoln, wave at everybody, Brother Lincoln. How many of you think we should just keep Lincoln here, and we'll just take Lincoln... You can go back and take all your family, but we want to keep Lincoln, because Lincoln, man, he's my boy. He's, he's, he's my, my, my uh, I came up to him, and I said, did you miss me? And he paused for a minute, and he was honest. He said, kind of. And so <laughs> that's why I appreciate Brother Lincoln. And we do miss the Nil family. Uh, I'm so thankful for Miss Ashley and all the years of faithful service. And uh, those of you who uh, have been around for a long time know that she was an absolutely integral part to the music ministry. And uh, we still feel the void of them being gone, especially Miss Ashley in the music. And so I enjoyed that, appreciate that. It's also good to look out and see a lot of our college students back from, uh, uh, back from college. And so we're excited to see them. And uh, I don't know, sure, clap, that's fine. There we go. We made it awkward, like two people clapped, and then it's like, well, do I clap? Should I clap? And so you're never sure in a Baptist church if you should clap. And so if one starts, just start clapping, so that way it's not awkward. But it is good to see our college students, and uh, we'll get to hear from them. I won't put them on the spot, but we'll get to hear testimonies about what God is doing in their lives. And so we're thankful for that. Be an encouragement to them while they're home. And it, it is good to see all of our college students. Uh, Miss Danny, is she here tonight? I don't see her. Where is she at? She's in nursery. She's serving. She's home and she's serving. I was going to give her a hard time and say that uh, we didn't even know she was gone because it's not like Brother Matt had a hard time letting her go, uh, but uh, I'm sure he's enjoying having her back, and uh, we're glad our college students are back home. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter number 4, and uh, we'll read just one verse as we get started tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, but we'll cover the entire chapter. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter number 4, and those of you who are just joining us, or maybe you're visiting, or you've not been here, we've been in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've been looking really at the latter life of King Solomon. And all the wisdom that he had at the beginning of his reign uh, in regards to his zeal and his passion, he penned three books of the Bible. You have the Song of Solomon and uh, just so beautifully intricate uh, detail that he, he provides in regards to the love that a man has for a woman. And so it is that our love ought to be towards our God. And then he has great wisdom. As a matter of fact, he had more wisdom as far as we know than anybody else in history. Uh, he asks of God, God says, because you love me and because you follow after me, I'm going to give you whatever you want what do you want and Solomon asks for wisdom and God gives him wisdom and he gives him above and beyond that he gives him wealth beyond measure and honor and his reign as king and he writes the book of Proverbs and he provides us with a lot of wisdom but we've been kind of looking at the contrast between that Solomon and this Solomon there's a difference there's something that happened or maybe he lost his focus or he lost his direction. And so uh, uh, the past couple of weeks we've been looking at this series which I've entitled Meaningless. And we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're on lesson seven but we're only in chapter four. And so we got to make up some ground. So let's cover all of chapter four tonight. I'll try to uh, be proficient and be quick. Let's look at one verse and then we'll pray. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter four and let's start with verse number 13. Just one verse and then we'll pray. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. So nice, I'll say it twice. Ready? 
Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and a foolish king who will no more be admonished. Tonight for just a few moments in light of our text, Ecclesiastes 4, and in light of our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, I'd like to talk to you about this subject, ready? Living better or better living, okay? Living better or better living. You say, Lamar, you're just switching words, but it means the same thing. It doesn't mean the same thing. And we will find that out tonight. Living better or better living. Let's ask the uh, Lord's blessing upon the service tonight and then we'll get started. Lord, as I've prayed already today and this week, I pray that once again you'd fill me with your power and that I would preach, uh, thus saith uh, the Lord, and that I'd preach the word of God tonight and nothing else. I pray that I wouldn't get in the way of the truth uh, that you desire to present to the membership of Wooden Valley Baptist Church tonight. I do pray that you'd be with me, fill me with your power, and I pray that as I speak, Lord, that uh, you would show us, every single person in this room, show us something or some things that we need to change to help draw our hearts closer to you. Lord, I'm thankful that uh, we serve in a church where the word of God is opened and where it's preached. And it's not an uncommon thing for us to open up the word of God and for your spirit to descend and inhabit, uh, Lord, your people. Lord, tonight I pray that you do it once again and you'd speak to hearts. And that we would not leave the same way that we came in. We're thankful, uh, Lord, for what you've already done and will do tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for reading with me and praying with me. I hope that you do that also. Whenever a preacher gets to, goes, goes to start praying, pray for him. Pray that the Lord will have his way in his heart and in his life. So here's an uh, a, uh, introductory question that I want to ask, all right? And I want you to answer it internally. Don't raise your hand. Don't speak out loud. But internally, I want you to answer this question. What is one thing, practical thing, that you would change about your life today to make it better? All right? Now, let me qualify it. I did not say, what is one thing that you'd change about your life to make it better? What is the word that I used? Practical, okay? It's got to be practical. This is not an, uh, an open-ended question or a, just a license to wish away something that you want. I'd like to drive a Maserati or I wish I had a million dollars or something like that. I'm talking something practical or something that makes sense, uh, something maybe uh, simple that you would change about your life today that would make it a better life, uh, for most of us, no doubt, we think of something along the lines of a job, all right? So you got a job, and maybe if you could change anything about your job, it would be the position that you hold in your job. I, I think I would be better off if I was a little higher up or if I got this promotion or if I worked in this department versus working in this department, or maybe it would even be something like, I wish I had a different job. It would really help me, and it would make my life better. Or maybe it's something along the lines of a house or a possession. You've got a house and uh, you're not, again, you're not wishing for the, the house on Wall Street. You're wishing for just a simple house, uh, but maybe it's a little bit bigger or more, uh, uh, maybe more uh, those of you who have kids and uh, they don't have their own room. It'd be easier and be better if you had a, a house where everybody got their own room, right? Chloe, are you right? Did they, did they, do you still have a room when you got home? Did you still have a room? You did. Oh, man, they're nice. My parents made my room a sewing room. A sewing room, like not even a cool, like an office. It was a sewing room, but anyways, I digress. So maybe it's something like that. You'd, you'd have a different house or, or maybe it's a car. I'm in the market for a car right now because I, I drive a 2017 Toyota Corolla and there's four people in my family. There's five seats. That makes sense, right? Wrong. You need more seats. 
I need more seats. I need to get a bigger car because really it's like having one bench seat where the, the, uh, uh, the car seats take up all the space and if we want to go anywhere, forget it. Can't go anywhere, do anything, can't go to the grocery store. And so I'm, I'm in the market for just a, a bigger car. Not necessarily nicer, but just bigger. So maybe it's something like that. Uh, uh, maybe it's something like a relationship. I would, if I could change this about my life, I would uh, invest more in this person or have a better relationship with this individual or even have a relationship relationship with somebody who's not a part of my life that I wish was a part of my life in hopes to make it better all right so think about that for just a second think about something in your mind I want you to find it make it tangible in your mind that you would change today that's that's practical that would make your life better all right you thinking of it now I would imagine if truth be told if we were to go person by person around the room and were to ask you what the conclusion is that you reached as far as what you would change that's practical to make your life better that most of us, not all, but most of us our answer wouldn't necessarily be that it would be better but that it would be different. Okay? Follow me here, ready? It wouldn't necessarily be something that would be better. Why? Because we really don't know what would be better. We think we know. But really, if we were to apply some of the things that we're thinking about, uh, time is to be told of whether or not it would be a better decision, but it would at least be different. And you know why that is? Is because in ourselves, in our human nature, we desire to change things. And we desire things to be different. We desire to implement things uh, so that they can be different simply for the fact that uh, we want change. We desire change. It's something that is ingrained in our mind and in our, in our lives. We want and desire something that is different. When Albert Einstein was making the rounds of the speaker's circuit, he usually found himself eagerly longing to get back to his laboratory work. One night as they were driving to get another rubber chicken dinner, Einstein mentioned to his chauffeur, a man who somewhat resembled Einstein in looks and manner, that he was tired of speech making and wanted to get back to his work. I have an idea, boss, his chauffeur said. I've heard you make that speech a dozen times, if not a thousand. I think I could make the speech for you. Einstein laughed loudly and said, why not? Let's try it. When they arrived at the dinner, Einstein donned the chauffeur's cap and jacket and sat at the back of the room. The chauffeur gave a beautiful rendition of Einstein's speech and even answered a few simple questions. Then, a supremely pompous professor asked an extremely uh, difficult question about antimatter formation, digressing here and digressing there to let everybody in the audience know that he was nobody's fool. Without missing a beat, the chauffeur looked dead in the eye of the professor and said, Why, sir, the answer to that question is so simple that I will have my chauffeur, who is sitting in the back of the auditorium, answer it for me. Yeah. And a lot of the times, that can be us, where we desire something different, and desiring something different might get us into a load of trouble. And thus is the case with King Solomon. That was his testimony. Uh, we find Solomon at this point in his life in a very dark and a discouraging place. We've been talking about it over and over again over the past couple of weeks. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse number 17, he says what? I hated life. I hated my life. Uh, last week we looked in this text at the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter number 4 and verse number 2. He says, you know what? The dead are better off than the living. And then he takes it a step further in verse number 3 where he says, you know what? It would be better if none of us were even born. So that way we wouldn't have to endure this life under the sun. And in Solomon's melancholy and despair, 
God is using Solomon to encourage and teach us something today. And I hope that you've gotten that as we've gone through the life of Solomon and we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes, I hope you realize that Solomon is a testament not to what attitude we ought to have, but maybe a testament to what attitude we shouldn't have. And by the way, let that be a testimony to all of us that God is going to use every single person in this room as a testimony one way or another. He is either going to teach, as Pastor was talking about this morning, the next generation what to do or not to do through your testimony. And Solomon is a testament to that very thing. And God is, is, is leading and he's encouraging and he's showing us how we ought to operate in our thinking uh, in regards to how we should per- perceive and look at life through the lenses of how Solomon did not perceive life. Uh, just by way of introduction, if I could lay some groundwork, I'd like to go somewhere tonight. And so to do so, go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, would you? Uh, I'm not going to depart from the text. I'm going to come back to Ecclesiastes chapter number uh, 4. But in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2 and verse number, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 14, verse 15, verse 16, in the first part of chapter number 3, Paul is going to give us three types of man. And three types of man that would describe people that are sitting In this residency tonight, you fall in one of three different categories. The first is the natural man. The first is the natural man. In verse number 14, it says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, Very simply, the natural man is one who knows not God. Someone who doesn't know God personally. And, And even as I'm preaching this morning, if you're a natural, or excuse me, this evening, as I'm preaching... If you're a natural man and you don't know God, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. You can gather and you can follow and you can understand what I'm trying to say, but as far as a spiritual application, you think it's foolishness. That's what, uh, that's what Paul is saying here, that the natural man, he cannot discern that which is spiritual. That leads us to the second man, that is the spiritual man. Verse number tw- uh, excuse me, 15 and 16, it says, But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? Then he says, But we have the mind of Christ. Very simply, the spiritual man is one who knows God, but he doesn't just know God. He is in tune to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So it's not just enough to know God. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. He doesn't just know God, but he is in tune or his heart is right with God in that he can discern that which is spiritual and that which is not. As I or pastor or your Sunday school teacher gets up and they begin to expound upon the scriptures, the spiritual man is readily receiving the word of God, not just so that they can know it, but so that they can apply it. That's the spiritual man. So you got the natural man and the spiritual man. If you go to the next chapter, in chapter number three and verse number one, here Paul gives us the third kind of man, and that is the carnal man. The carnal man, and I, brethren, verse number one, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So he goes over the carnal man, but in order to understand who the carnal man is, we must first identify who it is that Paul is talking to. Who's Paul talking to? He says, and I, what? Brethren, brethren, he's writing to the church at Corinth. He's writing not to the world, but he's writing to the Corinthian believer. Uh, We don't have time to unpack the text, but Paul is telling the Corinthian believer that he cannot expound upon spiritual things because they are not spiritually discerning enough to comprehend them. Uh, He desires to expound upon the scriptures and get into the richness of the word of God, but he can't even do that. Why? Because they're not spiritually mature enough to understand what he's trying to say. 
It isn't that they don't know God. They know God, but they are carnally minded. They are not spiritually minded, and therefore they cannot comprehend or make application to spiritual things. Why is that? Because their focus is not on things under the heavens, but things under the sun. If we could draw that parallel to the, what we've been developing in Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, Solomon has two perspectives under heaven, that is things that are eternal, that is things that have no beginning and have no end, but then you have things that are under the sun, things that have a beginning and things that have an end, things that are temporary or, or, or conditional or are right now here on earth, not eternal. And, and, and that's exactly what Paul is saying, is he desires to expound upon the scriptures, but he cannot do that because of their carnal worldview. The carnal man has the under the sun mentality. All right, it's test time. You didn't know you were going to take a test tonight, but you're going to take a test, and I simply want, to, want you to answer this question. Which of the three are you? Don't answer aloud. Answer to yourself and in your heart. You need to do that in order for us to continue in the message tonight, and so uh, I want you to identify who you are. I would imagine, and I don't, I'm looking out, and I, I think that I'm safe to say that everybody in here, as far as I know, is a believer. I think. I might be wrong. Maybe you are a natural man, or maybe you're someone who doesn't know God, and if you don't, what a night. Tonight would be the greatest night of your life if you would come to know your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but I would imagine that most of us are not the natural man. We fall into the latter of the two, right? We're either spiritually minded or we're carnally minded. We're either spiritually discerning enough to, to glean from the word of God when it is preached or when it is read, or we are too carnally minded to where, where we do read the word of God and where it is preached, we are not able to make spiritual discernment. So which are you tonight? Are you the carnal man or are you the spiritual man? Now let me ask a follow-up question. Which was Solomon at this point in his life? You understand? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm not going to ask for you to speak out, but I think it would be unanimous if you understand anything about the life of Solomon, you understand anything about the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've been here for even one service, you'll understand that Solomon was carnally minded at this point in his life. Early in his kingship, man, he did some great things for the Lord. Early in his kingship, he did a lot of great things for the kingdom uh, of Israel, the nation of Israel, but at the end of his life, he's carnally minded. Solomon knew God yet refused to adhere to the leading of God because his focus was on things under the sun. His mentality and his worldview was not eternal, but it was temporal. It was on things under the sun. It was carnal. And again, in doing so, he provides us with an illustration of what not to do. And in doing so, I believe that he gives us three areas in which we can live better lives. I'll go over them really quickly tonight. Number one, living better financially. All right, we're gonna just unpack the text, just verse by verse. Living better financially. Look at verse number four. Verse number four of Ecclesiastes chapter number four says, again, I considered all travail in every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This also, this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is an handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Uh, here Solomon gives us some principles to live by to help, help live better lives or make our lives better so that we can uh, continue uh, down the, the road and continue to live our lives, not just mundane, not melancholy, but to live better. How many of you want to live better lives? It's not a trick question. All of us want to live better lives. He gives us a few things very quickly. Number one, financial motive, all right? Financial motive. In verse four, he says, basically summarizing that there are many who are working for one reason and one reason only, and here it is, the attention of those around them. 
That is their motive. Verse number four. The attention of those around him. Again, I consider it all travail in every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. You know what that sounds a lot like? The American dream. <laughs> the American dream. Life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. No, uh, it's the pursuit of financial gain and social status for the recognition of those around you. That's really the American dream. I don't think I'm unfair in making that assessment that the American dream is about attaining as much wealth as you can, not so you can have wealth, but so that everybody around you is enamored with all the things you own and all the things that you have and all all the different accomplishments that you've reached. That's the American dream. That's what people desire whenever they come uh, and we can grind and we can grind to achieve top social status. Why? So that our neighbor looks at us and says, man, the Clems, you see that new car that they got? Man, that's nice. They must be rolling in the dough. And a lot of the times, whenever we think of this, when, when we think of trying to get ahead financially, uh, we think that it's only prominent on Wall Street, but it's just as prominent on Main Street. It's something that uh, not, uh, kind of we get the idea that this banker's sitting in New York City and he's trying to uh, pull one over on society so that he can gain financial, uh, uh, he can he can gain financial eliteness, and everybody around him is going to look at him and say, "Man, that guy, uh, man." It's not just juggling the difference between should I own a Maserati and should I own a Lamborghini. I'm talking you and me in the pew deal with this. You might not admit it, but all of us are guilty of saying, hey, hey what, you got the newest iPhone? Do you have the newest iPhone? I got the iPhone 10, Or I got the Galaxy S10 Plus. Or I've got this car. I've got that car. Or uh, I've achieved this. Or I've achieved that. It's not just prominent on Wall Street. It's also prominent on Main Street. It's something that you and I deal with. And why is that? Because our motive is carnal. Because our motive is not about attaining wealth so that we can live a better life. I'm not against wealth. By the way, if you have wealth, share it with me, with the church, especially me. But what is your motive behind attaining wealth? Is your motive behind attaining wealth and and social status to gain the attention of those around you? Not only that, but financial mistakes. Ecclesiastes 4, verse number 5, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. What a word picture. And as I was reading that, I'm gonna be honest and and admit that I was stumped. I'm like, what on earth does that even mean? And as I begin to study and look, I'm looking for some deep, rich truth and it's actually very simple and very practical what Solomon's saying here. Here's what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying that anyone who isn't willing to work with his hands is a fool. That's what he's saying. Anybody who's not willing to apply themselves and to work hard is a fool. You know, that sounds like, that sounds like the 26-year-old uh, college graduate with a master's degree in molecular biology who says, well, you know, I just want to do something that I'm passionate about, and I can't find a job because I just want to do something I'm passionate. Are you passionate about eating? Are you passionate about a roof over your head? Are you passionate about uh, providing for your needs of yourself and your family? Then your passion ought to be hard work and not just what makes you happy. That's what Solomon is saying. What are you passionate about? Here's the last one. He says, financial median. Financial media in verse six, it says, better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Here's what Solomon is saying. Have a balanced approach, and I'll add this, to your finances. Have a balanced approach to life, yes, but have a balanced approach to your finances. Uh, The word quietness that appears there in the text means this, tranquility, tranquility, calmness, or restraint. Tranquility, calmness, or restraint, we could say it this way. It's a word that we don't like to use in our English vernacular. Contentment. Contentment. I have enough. I have enough. It's not not a sin to have a lot. 
It's not a sin to have more necessarily than you need. But if that's what you're pursuing, let me just tell you, you have enough. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse number 7 is not a, it's not a proverb of Solomon, it's a proverb of Agur, but here's what he says in chapter number 30 and verse number 7, two things have I required of thee, deny me them not before I die, remove far from me vanity and lies, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. That is a very, 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 very powerful set of verses right there, if you understand the context. Very, very powerful. He's not saying that less is more. He's saying that enough is better. He's saying, better would it be for you to just take care of my needs rather than to give me too much. Why? Because then you'll be really quick to forget the Lord and forget that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. So he's saying, hey, don't prosper me so much where I forget where the blessings come from. But then he also says, take care of my need. I don't want to be for one. I don't want to steal from my neighbor so that I can feed my family. Here's what he's saying. I desire balance. Okay? I desire a median. Lord, give me what I need. And can I tell you something? He will supply your every need. He will give you just what you need. He'll provide for your every need. And so enough is better. Enough is better. He shows us how to live better financially. Here's the second one. Live better relationally. Live better relationally. Let's read some verses in Ecclesiastes 4, verse number 9. It says, two are better than one. Popular set of scripture right here. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth. For he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not easily broken. Solomon warns us, here it is, not to sacrifice relationships for riches in these verses. And, and he's admonishing us and he's warning us uh, not to use relationships to attain monetary gain, nor are we to ride on the skirt tails of somebody else's success is what he's trying to say. The purpose behind relationships that God places in our lives, listen to this, is not so you can get ahead. That's what Solomon is saying. God did not give you relationships in life so that you can get ahead in life. All right, Lamar, I'll admit that. That sounds right, sounds accurate, but then why did God give us relationships? Solomon talks about it. First, working together. Why does God give us relationships, working together? Read verse nine again with me. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. In other words, you're, you're not gonna believe this. This is, this is just deep. Two people can get more accomplished than one can. Seriously. That's what Solomon is saying, that two people are able to accomplish more than one person can. And that very easily manifests itself in a number of different relationships. Let's go over a couple of them. Marriage. <laughs> Been married for six and a half, going on seven years, and I can tell you, I can accomplish more when me and my wife are unified than I could ever hope to accomplish on my own, on my best days. And every husband said, <laughs> every husband said, and every wife said, hallelujah. Marital relationships. And I'm not just, by the way, I need to qualify. I'm not just talking about accomplishing anything. I'm talking about accomplishing something for the kingdom of God. Marriage relationship. I can accomplish more with, with my wife than I could ever hope to accomplish on my own. What about this? Parental relationship. Parental relationships in the same facet. Uh, I can accomplish more as a family unit than me and my wife could accomplish on our own. 
Now, now my son is only two and a half going on three and my daughter's only three months old and right now what they have to benefit myself and our ministry is they make me happy. But I'm looking forward to the day when I get a labor together with my family in ministry for the work of God. I can testify being a preacher's kid and if you're a preacher's kid, you understand that some of the best memories in my life, Brother Mayfield, best memories of my life is helping my dad with ministry. I, I love playing ball, I love going fishing, I love doing all those things, but my best memories in life are when I was striving together with my father in the ministry. And I look forward to the day when I'm able to share that with my children. Why? So that we can accomplish more for the cause of Christ. That's why God gave us family units, so that we can accomplish more. What about this? Pastor's been preaching on Wednesday nights, and if you've not been here, you need to be here because of what he's preaching on. The importance of the church in your life and the importance of you in the church's life. I mean, does it not fit? God gave us a relationship in regards to a church so that we can accomplish more for the cause of Christ and get the gospel out to more people. So it could be said, as pastor has been saying on Wednesday nights, that when you are not in your place, you are limiting the effectiveness of the church. Am I right? God gives us relationships for purposes, and the purpose is to give us somebody that we can work alongside to accomplish more things for God. God gives us relationships so that we can work together and get more accomplished. Secondly, walking together. Walking together. Verse 10, it says, For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Sad verse. Uh, Here he's talking about walking through the seasons of life with someone along your side. Uh, I won't re-preach uh, the message I preached a couple of weeks ago, but he goes through the seasons of life in the scripture that's very popular in Ecclesiastes chapter three, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. And he's kind of continuing his thought here and saying that when you're going through the seasons of life, remember the contrast between the good and the bad? How many of you will testify that there's been a time or two where you've fallen and you've had to have someone in your corner help you up? How many of you would testify that what a dark and lonely place it would be, as he said at the latter part of that verse, if you had to go through those seasons by yourself? Now, we always have the Lord, but I'm talking about a a brother and sister in Christ who comes alongside you and pulls you up and helps you up when you fall. Walking through those seasons of life. Working together. Walking together. Here's a weird one, all right? Warming together, all right? Warming together. Look at verse number 11. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? Now, this is very taboo in today's society, but in Solomon's day, it would be very common for somebody to get a buddy to go on a journey. Why? So that they can retain body heat whenever it's cold. All right? For lack of a better term, uh, whenever you're traveling with your buddy in Solomon's day and it gets a little cold outside, you snuggle up with one another. I'm not saying that we should do that in today's society. There's been great inventions in regards to heat and technology, but in Solomon's day, it was very acceptable for you to go on a journey and you to bring someone alongside you so that you could get close to them in close proximity to them so that you can retain body heat. That's what Solomon is saying. And, And in contrast to that, he says, how miserable would it be for you to go out on your own and you to go on a journey on your own and be alone and not able to warm yourself? Very simply what he's saying is, it's appropriate and it's okay for you to keep those in your life whom God has placed in your life close to you. It's appropriate, nay, probably wise, to keep those whom God has placed in your life, whom you're working together and whom you're striving and walking together through those seasons of life, keep them in close proximity to you 
so that you can keep one another warm. And, and I, let me just throw this out there. There's no pride in being a loner. A lot of people I know, man, Lamar, I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody in my corner. Yes, you do. You might not want to admit it, but whenever you're going through the seasons of life that we just talked about and you fall, which every man is going to fall, thank God for somebody that's in your corner that's going to help you up. Thank God for those who you can walk alongside and work together with. There's no pride in being a loner. So you have working together, walking together, warming together. Here's the last one. This one's important. Watching together. Verse number 12. Watching together. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Again, this is very common scripture that we've heard, and I've even heard it in the realms of premarital counseling where a pastor will get together with a couple, Journey and Rigo are getting married, and I bet you put money on it that pastor's going to use that verse. Brother Landy used it for me whenever I was marriage counseling and I was in Oklahoma City and my wife was, or excuse me, my fiance was here. She would marriage counsel with pastor and I'd marriage counsel with Brother Landy. I got the short end of the pole. But anyways, he would say, man, Lamar, a threefold cord is not quickly broken, a husband and a wife in the Holy Spirit. And that's a great application. And I would agree that it takes three to thrive, a husband, a wife, and the Holy Spirit. But actually, Solomon's being way more practical and base level than that. Solomon is just using common sense here and saying that more, excuse me, the more people you have in in close proximity to you, the more aware you can be to the attacks of the enemy. Do you hear me? The more people that you have in close proximity to you, the more keen you are to the attacks of the enemy. And I saw it was so beautifully illustrated and and I started to get the guys from the basketball team, Brother Alex, and have them come up. And uh, what's the most important thing when it comes to defense? communication why is that I played ball growing up I even coached right before Alex coached I coached some of your boys and something that was ingrained in me in regards to basketball and really in regards to any sport is the importance of communication on defense the reason being is because you got five guys that are on the court if I'm at the top of the key and I'm on defense I'm worried about one guy and one guy only and that's the guy that's in front of me but there's one big problem with that and that is that this joker's got four other jokers who are trying to take me out So it's important for me to have those four guys that are my teammates to communicate with me. And I'm serious. It's a beautiful thing whenever you watch a team play together. I can remember being in high school and it was just chatter, constant chatter. Hey, pick to your left, pick to your left, screen coming right, screen coming right, clean, clean, clean. Why is that? I can give my attention to the enemy that's in front of me while my friends are looking out for me for the enemies that are coming from right or left. And I believe that's what Solomon is saying. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's important for you to have people in your corner and it's important for you to have people in your lives, this is important, that have your best interest at heart so that they can tune you in to the attacks of the enemies that you don't see. Now that latter part is important. It's not just important to have people in your inner circle. A lot of the times we say, oh yeah, I have a lot of friends. Okay, do those friends have your best interest at heart? Threefold cord is not quickly broken. When it comes to having people in your life that have your best interest at heart and will encourage you spiritually, it is essential to live a better life, surrounding yourself with people so that you can focus on one enemy at a time and they're discerning enough to tell you about the enemies that you cannot see. Working together and walking together, warming together, watching together, he shows us how to live better lives financially and then relationally. Lastly, very quickly, living better realistically, number three. Living better realistically. Now, we're going to get into the text now, all right? We're going to do some exegesis, and we're actually going to go verse by verse. And I want us to see what Solomon is saying. Make some application, and we'll be done. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 13, the verse we started with tonight. says, Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and a foolish king, who will no more be admonished. 
For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he, had, uh, he that is born uh, in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of, the, even of all that uh, have been before them. They also that cometh after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. And then he ends the chapter. Now this is very, it's seemingly complicated, but I believe in these last few verses that Solomon is looking back on the history of the nation of Israel. All right, he's looking back on the nation of Israel. In verse number 13, you have the old and the foolish king. And I believe right here he's talking about the dumbest king in in the nation of Israel's history up until this point, King Saul. An old and a foolish king. Saul was the first king over the nation of Israel. And he was chosen by the nation of Israel because of his charisma. And because of his physicality and his popularity. And Saul did okay at first. But eventually he got off track. And he got to the point in his kingship where he could no longer be admonished. That describes Saul. Where no one could come in and tell Saul anything. I'm thinking about latter life of Saul. Whenever he he does a good thing, he kicks everybody out that's a musician uh, in the kingdom. But then when he inquires of the Lord and the Lord doesn't answer, who does he inquire of? The witch at Endor could no longer be admonished. Old and foolish king is King Solomon. Then who is the poor and wise child in verse 13? King David. The eventual second king over the nation of Israel, that is Solomon's father, King David. And, and, and God gave some specific instructions in regards to how Israel is to select their king. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said unto Solomon, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Don't, don't pick a king how you want to pick a king. You pick a king how I tell you to pick a king, and I'm looking for somebody who is right spiritually, and that's why King David is elected as king over the nation of Israel, not because of his physicality or his stature or his social status or even the fact that he was a great warrior. He was elected king over the nation of Israel because he's said to be a man after God's own heart. That's why God brings him into the kingship. So the old and foolish king is Saul, and the poor and wise child is King David. Look at verse 15. All of that is important because of verse 15. I considered all the living which walk under the sun, look at this, with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. Wonder who he's talking about here. I believe he's talking about himself. He's talking about King Solomon, the eventual third king over the nation of Israel. And and Pastor even referenced it this morning at the end of the book of 1 Chronicles, uh, chapter number 29. But whenever Solomon is elected king and he comes into the nation of Israel, great fanfare and celebration. I believe that they threw parties. And it was a big hoopla because King Solomon is now taking the reign. And David is transitioning out. And King Solomon is transitioning in. And it was great fanfare. And it was an excitable thing. It was something that people would get behind and celebrate. But then look what he does at verse number 16 he bemoans his own kingship he says this there is no end of all the people even of all that have been before them he's talking about king Saul and he's talking about king David those who have been before us they also that come after shall not rejoice in him here he's talking about himself but not just himself he's talking about all the kings that are going to precede him every king that's going to come after me every king that has been before me what They also that come after me shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. They didn't rejoice in Saul. 
They didn't rejoice in David. They didn't rejoice in me. They're not going to rejoice in the kings after me. You know what he's saying? Rank comes and rank goes. Popularity comes and popularity goes. Status comes and status goes. Positions come and positions go. Everyone's going to get their 15 minutes of fame. But eventually, just like the kings that are before me, just like the kings that are going to be after me, just like my own kingship, no one's going to rejoice but for a time. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. It's going to pass. Solomon is warning us here in these verses, here it is, to be careful of desiring the limelight all the time. And that being your motive, and that being your drive, and that being the way that you operate and you function is simply to attain the position, the rank, the authority, so that you are now in the limelight and your name is written in the stars. That's what Solomon is saying. He admonished, uh, excuse me, he's admonishing us to be leery of always wanting the attention of those around us. Why? Because it's only going to last for a brief time. In the realm of eternity, when you, have, when you have your lenses on, when you're looking at things under the sun, it'll last for a while. But in the scape of eternity, it's only going to last for a brief time. It's going to come to an end. And otherwise, that's what he's saying. In other, in other words, that's what he's saying is your rank and your position that you've reached and you've attained. And it's not bad, by the way. It's, it's a great thing to, ret- uh, uh, to achieve some sort of rank, whether it be in your work or in your church or whatever. Hey, that's, a, that's not a bad thing. But if that's your motive and that's your goal, clock's ticking. And it's only a matter of time before that position goes away. I mean, I mean, think about it. Uh, who won the Super Bowl six years ago? Who won the uh, Golden Glove two years ago? Who won an Oscar last year? Who won the World Cup in 2014? I could go on and on, but isn't it funny how quickly, how quickly, I'm talking, I just, I just went over things in the last 10 years and no one answered, how quickly those things come and go, how quickly popularity and rank and status and accomplishments diminish. When you live life trying to gain the attention of the people around you, you will sacrifice relationships. And again, we've, we've established this, relationships that God has given you. When you live trying to catch the eye of society around you, no dollar amount is too much. You will spend any dollar amount to achieve and attain that rank and that social status. Solomon is saying that a life lived in pursuit of the limelight will get you nothing but emptiness and depression. Vexation of spirit. Let me draw the connection and connect the dots. He's saying that a life lived in pursuit of those things will lead to a life of carnality. It will lead to a carnal life. Here's the conclusion, and we're done. Living a better life is not determined by what you can upgrade or do differently, but rather changing your perspective from the outward and turning it and your perspective towards the upward. When you look at things through the lenses of eternity, that's not the perspective of under the sun, that's not the perspective of temporal beginning and end, but eternity, that under heaven. When you look uh, through the lenses, you look at life through the lenses of eternity, it makes it easy, it makes it easy to live a better life. Why? Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter four and verse number 11, I have learned in whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. There's that word again. Therewith to be content. Here's the message. The difference between living better and better living is simply this, contentment. Contentment. Let me put it in Solomon's terms rather than in Paul's terms. I've learned in whatsoever state I'm in or 
season I'm in, therewith to be content. Contentment. When we get our focus off of upgrades and new installments and living better, excuse me, better living, it becomes easy to live better no matter what state or season you find yourself in. When you get your your eyes off the pursuit of eternal, or excuse me, temporary gain or monetary gain, or if you get your, if you if you just take off your lenses of under the sun and you put on your lenses of under heaven, it makes it easy to live a better life. Why? Because you're content no matter what state you're in. No matter what condition you're in, no matter what condition your car's in, your family's in, your house is in, whether or not you got that promotion or didn't get that promotion, whether or not uh, you got this thing that you wanted or you didn't, whatever state I'm in, whatever season I'm in, I'm going to be content. You know what that leads to? I love it. You know what a byproduct of contentment is? True joy. True joy. I'm not talking about happiness. I believe happiness and joy are two different things. And a life lived grateful and content for what God has placed you in or given you or the season that God has placed you in, it leads to a life of true joy. Do you want to live better? Excuse me, do you want better living? Do you want better living? Is that your motive? Is that your drive? You can go ahead and try to get bigger and better, but the only problem with trying to get bigger and better is once you've gotten that which is bigger and better, there's always something else that's bigger and better. You want better living? You can live in pursuit of those things and it will lead you down an endless road of lack of fulfillment, depression, and vexation of spirit. Do you want to live better? Be content. Be content. Lord, I pray that your uh, hand would be upon the congregation tonight. Lord, I know it's a simple truth. Just